0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the
1: stock market each day.
0: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
1: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seifel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today, we're talking financials.
0: Today, we're talking consumer goods.
1: Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today, we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, August 9th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's Financial Show, we're taking a closer look at Berkshire Hathaway's most recent quarter, We've got a listener question on investing in municipal bonds, and we'll wrap it up with a couple of stocks for you to watch. Joining me as always, albeit from a different location this week, it's Certified Financial Planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything
0: going? I am doing just great, Jason. We are here in sunny Orlando, Florida. Um, not Not even 450 miles from home could keep me away. (laughs) <laughs>
1: well, that sounds like you guys are set up with a nice little situation down there. That's the, the recent rental property that you all
0: invested in, is that right? It is. I am at the Margaritaville Resort in Orlando. We bought. They built a bunch of cottages around the hotel and uh, sold them to individuals and investors, um, and we bought one of them a couple months ago. Well, I have to believe that, given the
1: location and given that sunny weather, uh, 365 down in Florida, that probably is going to work out uh, pretty well from the investing side, and it gives you a place to take the kids every so often, right? And you got you got a lot of years left with those kids in that Disney stage; they're still really young.
0: For sure. Well, we're 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 at the Motley Fool, as you know, we're all about combining investments with having fun, and this kind of a <laughs> is 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 a great way to do both.
1: Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. If, if your kids, if their first stock is not Disney, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be disappointed, man. <laughs> we're, we're gonna have to have a talk. Uh, well, maybe I, I could understand if you made Disney their first stock, or perhaps this, this. Uh, What we're going to discuss today here, you know, Berkshire Hathaway. Maybe that could be their first stock too, if you wanted. I know, I know that you're a Berkshire fan, but let's let's jump into Berkshire Hathaway uh, because over the weekend uh, we saw the company release second quarter earnings, and you know Berkshire. The nice thing about the you know the nice thing about their earnings releases is not a lot of that pomp and circumstance. I mean, it's a 10Q. You don't get an 8K, You don't get a transcript. You don't get an earnings call. They just—it's it, just here's what it is in in fine filing fashion. And keep on moving forward. So you got to go in there and do a little bit of the work uh, when it comes to to uh, digging into these Berkshire Hathaway earnings. But uh, it, it seems like at least on the surface, the business is recovering nicely from what was a difficult 2020.
0: Yeah, you're right. Warren Buffett and his team pretty much just put the release out there and say, "All right, see you at the annual meeting next year." <laughs> um, and, and they're one of the rare companies that reports their earnings on Saturdays. Every earnings report of theirs comes out on a Saturday morning, yeah, and they do that, that by design. It's so their earnings that investors have a chance to digest the information, you know, outside of market hours. I mean, you you always hear about these stocks like spiking twenty percent on earnings day and then ending lower, or Having to be halted a few times because of their they're so volatile on earnings day that's not an issue with Berkshire because they one they're a big company and don't tend to have volatile moves and two they they intentionally give people time to digest earnings. What a concept ah, yeah. novel <laughs> indeed <laughs> but on the head, on the the headline numbers earnings was were up about seven percent year over year, but Warren Buffett himself tells investors not to pay attention to the earnings per share number and the reason is. We all know Berkshire's, most of its value, the bulk of its value, is in the stock portfolio. Um, Berkshire's stock portfolio is worth over $300 billion, so it's about half the company right now. Um, And those earnings results reflect the unrealized gains and losses from the stock portfolio. For example, if Berkshire's Apple investment went up $10 billion over the past year, that's reflected on a per-share basis in its earnings. Even though it hasn't really made that money yet until Berkshire hits the sell button someday. So it's not really an accurate reflection of how much the company's actually making. So for that we need to kind of get past the earning the headline number and get into Berkshire's operating businesses. And on the operating earnings, you mentioned they recovered nicely from COVID, and you can certainly see it in this number. Operating earnings, meaning that that it's businesses owned, were up twenty-one percent year over year. Those are businesses like Geico, uh, Duracell, Berkshire's utilities businesses, the all the consumer products businesses they own, Clayton Homes,
1: the railroads, uh, right? The
0: railroads, yeah. uh, the railroads were did really well. The railroad utility and energy segment were the best performing part. They were up. The earnings from that segment were up twenty seven percent year over year, um, which is pretty impressive. I mean, during the COVID lockdowns, they didn't need didn't have the need to transport as much around the country. Um, I mean, utilities and energy perform well, no matter what. Um, people still pay their electric bills during the during the pandemic, for the most Boy, part. yeah.
1: Got to keep the power on. And now more than ever, right? Everybody needs more power and more connectivity than ever before.
0: <laughs> right. And I mean, Geico did just fine during the pandemic, because even though people weren't driving and they gave people somewhat of a – I think they were one of the ones that gave a discount because people weren't driving during the pandemic.
1: They did, you know, we 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 got the same thing. We've been with Progressive for I 15-20 years now or something like that. And um, Progressive did the same thing. We got a little bit a little bit of a rebate um, which was nice, you know? I mean that that was nice.
0: Yeah, but at the, at the same time, people weren't driving, so there were fewer claims Berkshire had to pay out.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's um, a good point.
0: So they passed some of that on to their customers, which is nice. So the insurance premiums Berkshire collected were up 10% year over year. Which is to be expected. That's the slower growth because that was a very resilient business during the pandemic. Um, So there's that. And got to remember, this whole quarter is being compared to the second quarter of 2020, which is a terrible comparison for any company. Um, I mean, Berkshire has over 60 businesses that it owns, in addition to its stock portfolio. So pretty much all of its businesses were affected to one extent or another. Some were absolutely devastated by the pandemic.
1: So, Matt, I think one of the you know, one of the things that that has been a big point of conversation in regard to Berkshire Hathaway not just this quarter, but it's been many, many quarters now. Um, all of this talk, really, it's two things: talk of a dividend and talk of acquisitions. Right? When is Berkshire Hathaway going to pay a dividend? When is Berkshire Hathaway going to make another meaningful acquisition? And this all comes at the same time as the company is repurchasing a lot of its own stock. And when I say a lot, I mean, they, they repurchased, I think, close to $6 billion worth of its own stock in the second quarter alone. At the, the first half of the year, that's, that's over $12 billion in repurchases. And, and it's basically on pace for what they did last year as well. I mean we can we could go a number of different ways here but I mean you know at the end of the day I mean this is a business that really it's it's finding more value in itself than it feels like it's finding anywhere else I mean I can't I don't really begrudge that right I don't I, I don't really feel like I mean I you can argue whether there's other you know, better opportunities out there but clearly they they feel like that's where the most value is this, these days
0: Yeah I think a lot of investors kind of feel like I do like I want Berkshire to do something with its cash Right. It doesn't necessarily have to acquire a business. It doesn't necessarily have to put it in the stock market. It can buy back shares. If that's where it sees the value, I'm totally fine with them doing that. If that's where they see the value, I mean, you you mentioned over $12 billion uh, in the first half of the year. This is a company that until a few years ago wasn't really buying back stock at all. Yeah, um, because they kind of had an outdated buyback program for for the for a while. Well, and, and they the, and changed the standard too, right? I mean, it was at some point it, the, the standard was essentially
1: if it fell below, I think it was what 1.2 or 1.1 times book value, then that was where they felt like the that was their line, right? Where they felt like that's when they could start buying back. But then they changed that, and it basically just said it, it, wherever Warren and Charlie feel like there's there's value there, they're going to go ahead and green light it.
0: Yeah, now it says that whenever Buffett and Munger agree that it's trading for a a significant discount, is how they put it, to its intrinsic value, if both Buffett and Munger agree and they leave at least $30 billion in reserves, then they could buy back share whenever they want. Right now, Berkshire has, even after all those buybacks, $144 billion in cash. (laughs) So there's a little bit of wiggle room left. That's just Um, They could have bought back a lot more. And I mean, Berkshire actually breaks down the buybacks by month uh in its oh, yeah, quarterly yeah, I didn't reports that. yeah um so you can see like when they thought it was a particularly good deal and it's not always when the share price is the lowest um this time they thought they, they apparently thought um may or i'm sorry june was the biggest uh buyback month of the quarter so, and and it wasn't necessarily that the share price was the, was the cheapest it wasn't it's just based on a combination of the share price and what's going on with their businesses uh buffett and munger i mean Buffett sits in his office all day and tries to calculate this kind of stuff. So I, I no one knows the secret sauce there. Um, but they, they both apparently agree that the business is trading for a significant discount to its, to the actual true value of its of of the sum of the parts. Um, so they they didn't make any major acquisitions in the second quarter. We know, and I'll talk about this in a second if you want that they didn't really do a lot of stock buying uh, in the second quarter, but they apparently thought that their own stock was the best place to put money to work, and when you consider an investable universe of you know five thousand stocks or whatever it is, yeah, you know, that's saying a lot. That is saying a lot, and, and I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because that that sort
1: of leads me into my next point or my next question. Really, I'd, I'd love to get your your take on this because. Just like so, so you noted that they didn't do a whole heck of a lot of buying on the open market, just of and adding to their investment portfolio. I mean, I, I think I, I saw the numbers. They they sold some, they bought some, but it wasn't anything out of out of out of control. There, not not, it, it certainly wasn't in line with the amount of money that they spent buying their own stock. Um, and that I mean that just doesn't really feel like a surprise at this point. It does feel kind of like you know what you're gonna get with this business. you' got Warren and Charlie running the show here. It's Berkshire Hathaway. this you just you know what you're getting by the same token and we we talk about this all the time. Investing is about the future, right? It's about what's going to happen um and we have to start looking at Berkshire Hathaway through the lens of Greg Abel. And Todd and Ted, right? I mean, these are these are three uh, big names who are going to have a lot to do with where this business goes in the coming decade and beyond. And when you have traditionally, I mean, of course, Warren and Charlie have, have stuck within their circle of competence, so to speak. Don't feel like they really have that that prowess when it comes to tech uh which is is probably not the greatest time right because tech is really just uh proliferating in in every in every way um what do you think this Berkshire Hathaway of the future looks like i mean it feels like this business may have to make some kind of meaningful pivot in order to i i don't want to say remain relevant but at least in order to grow right in order to stay at the top of the conversation for investors over the next decade and beyond, I mean, it feels like they're going to have to make some kind of a pivot there.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of speculation as to what the Berkshire of the future might look like. It could look very much like it does today. Yeah, um, yeah. In in which case, a lot of investors are going to think it's boring, kind of like you just alluded to. Yeah. Um, but with Gre- uh, Greg Abel and um, he's going to be you know in charge of the the non the non stock portfolio side of the business for the right. most part. Ted and Todd are going to have pretty much. You know, full control of the of the investments, Um, and they have been taking more of a tech focused approach. Kind of the newer companies, yeah. Um, You know, they were where the Snowflake investment came from. They were where uh, Berkshire's Amazon stake came from. Uh, They were the ones who,
1: the Brazilian payments investments,
0: right? The Brazilian investments. They were the ones who first bought Apple stock in the portfolio, Um, and and they've done really well so far. A lot of people think that eventually some parts of Berkshire's business might be spun out. Yeah. Um, That's another thing that I've heard. Some of the more legacy, kind of, you know, the slow growing capital intensive businesses like the utilities, maybe that could be spun out eventually. I don't necessarily see that happening, but there has been speculation to that. Um, I think the new management will be more aggressive in deploying that capital because today's investors don't want a stockpile of cash, they want you to put (laughs) that to work. Yeah. it, it, and whether that's the right or wrong way to go is not for me to say, but I mean, a lot of investors, myself included, are not fans that there's $140 billion of cash sitting on the sidelines. That's a lot of I money. Mean, do something with it. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot buy back money. $140 billion of your own stock, <laughs> but do something with it. Um, and, and so I, I could see the the incoming investment managers who currently only manage a small percentage of the portfolio. I want to say it's like twelve billion between the two of them of a three hundred billion dollars stock portfolio. Yeah. Um, So they don't have a ton of control just yet, but once they have full control, I can see it being more of a a modern portfolio. Uh, You know, you'll find a lot of the the more growthier stocks we talk about in there at some point in the future, Um, and I can see them kind of being more aggressive with deploying capital. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I think it 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 just it it goes back to I mean, for for businesses. Allocating capital is—it's difficult to do. It's—it's it's nice to have all of that money, but you got to be able to do something with it, and that's really—that's really, that's really w- what you're paying your talent to do. And I mean, I yeah, I'm not a shareholder in Berkshire Hathaway. If I were, I would be asking that question: Why do you have so much cash on the balance sheet? Isn't there something you can do with it? I mean, I, I don't—you know—buying back stock is one thing. I mean, you could—you could argue the dividend, of course. I mean, perhaps they feel like valuations are stretched and there's just not an acquisition that really um, is is speaking to them at this point, but but yeah, it does feel like that is something – it just feels like the drumbeat is going to only get louder until they actually do something with it.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there are so many options. They don't have to acquire a full business. Uh, Buffett mentioned that the whole SPAC boom um, was was has really kind of pushed business valuations up to the stratosphere, at least to where he won't want to be, be too interested in them. Um, so there's that there's they can put more money into the stock portfolio. like I mentioned there's an investable universe of thousands of stocks they could potentially choose from. Yeah. I mean if, if Buffett likes Apple and Bank of America so much, buy more of them. Um, well yeah so I, yeah there's there, <laughs> just... I, Buffett has said before like if we could buy all of Apple, we would okay, put your money where your mouth is. you got a hundred <laughs> billion dollars, buy some more of it. Um, and that's kind of where my head is that like if you like these stocks so much, like, I don't get the proportions, I guess. Like, buy a little bit more of some of these. Yeah. If you have yeah. that much cash sitting around and you still like them as investments.
1: Yeah. That'll be a fascinating thing to watch here in the next, in the next, uh, in the coming years. I mean, it just, what Berkshire Hathaway looks like uh, over the course of the next decade, I think is going to be a very, um, it, it's just going to be, it's going to be a story that, that many in the investing world pay attention to. Cause I just, I have a feeling that this is going to be, there are going to be some traditions and, and some nostalgia that remain, but it just feels to me like this is a business that's really going to have to make a leap, a pivot to to sort of become that Berkshire Hathaway of the 21st century. that hadn't gotten there yet. I mean, and, and, you know, you said the word boring, and I mean, boring oftentimes can lead to some of the best investments, but you know, boring can also become a little bit staid and uh, and and stale and And so you have to always keep that in mind, particularly in this fast changing world so uh yep it'd, it'd be a fun one to follow uh Matt, we got a question on Twitter the other day from uh Matt bear and at Matt bear asks thoughts on municipal bond funds as a pretty safe place to store some cash for a year while making a bit of return and I mean we we get questions like this in in some form or another uh fairly often I mean folks looking for a way to squeeze some type of return out of the cash that they have um, across a a shorter timeline, right? I mean typically we say if you have money that you know you're going to need within the next three years or less, uh, you really should be thinking long and hard. Before you invest that in the market, because you can put yourself in a situation where you become a desperate seller. Nobody wants to do that. Obviously, bonds a little bit of a different dynamic there, a little bit of a different dynamic to bonds as opposed to the stock market. Wondering if you had any insight here, uh, particularly given your certified financial planner status.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, I I don't want to just answer this from the the municipal bonds angle. They have their own benefits, uh, specifically that they're tax free. Right, um, that you don't have to pay t- pay tax on the interest you get, but a lot of people think bonds are a better investment right now than just leaving your, some of your money in cash. Um, and there's a, there's some logic to that. To be fair, I mean, I don't know what your savings account is paying right now, but I'm not 100 <laughs> percent sure mine's paying anything.
1: I was going to say it may not be paying anything at all, but if, if it's possible, I saw something like a nickel worth of interest the other the other month. But it, it,
0: no, it's not reportable. <laughs> Bonds are not paying a ton right now, but they're paying a lot more than the you know 0.01% that some savings accounts are paying. Yeah. So it's a natural place where investors might want to put it. So what I will say about bonds is that that's good logic if you're going to buy a bond and hold it to maturity. For example, if I buy a 10-year treasury bond paying 1.5% and hold it until it expires in 10 years, I'm going to get those 1.5% interest payments semi-annually for the next 10 years. And at the end of the term, I'll get my money back. On a shorter term basis, bond valuations do fluctuate. Um, if you look at a chart of a bond of any municipal bond fund or a treasury bond fund, I'm looking at the Vanguard Total Bond Index Fund. It's one of my favorites. Ticker symbol is BND. Um, that's what I'm looking at right now uh, as I'm talking. And the chart fluctuates. These aren't completely stable investments. The, the benefit to a savings account is that if I put $100 in a savings account, in 6 months that's going to be worth $100 roughly. Yeah. If I put $100 into a bond fund, it's not going to fluctuate tremendously, but it could be worth $98, $96, $102. It's not just the interest you're getting because the value of those bonds that the fund holds fluctuate over time. And the reason they fluctuate over time, the primary reason is interest rates. Bond that I don't want to get too mathematical or technical here. But the key point to know is that bond values and interest rates have an inverse relationship. If treasury yields spike, the value of existing bonds goes down. If treasury yields fall, the, the value of existing bonds go up. Treasuries and most bonds are paying historically low interest rates right now. So there's little room to the downside and a lot of room for interest rates to rise. As interest rates rise, let's say that the economy overheats the Fed is to raise rates and the 10-year Treasury yield spikes to 3%. That would push the value of your bond funds down. So it's not as risk-free of an investment as you might think. It's a lot lower risk than putting your money in the stock market, but as compared to putting it in a savings account, right now that bond fund I mentioned pays just under 2% dividend yield or interest rather, you're not getting that for free they're taking on a little bit of risk to get that. There's no such thing as risk-free returns right now. <laughs> um, you know, that's a, a popular economic concept is risk, risk-free returns. Yeah. And in normal times, you can get that by buying like a three-month treasury, which yeah, right now pays like nothing. Take a risk getting out of bed in the morning, right, Matt? <laughs> right. <laughs> so if you're buying any type of any type of municipal bond fund, unless it's very short term, which probably doesn't pay much, um, you're, you are taking some risk to your principal uh, as interest rates fluctuate. Uh that bond fund I mentioned has uh the that the share price has fluctuated over the past year between about eighty four dollars a share and about eighty eight dollars a share. Oh wow so not a ton of volatility when you could, when you think about some of the stocks we follow. Yeah you know, the price there. is gonna double yeah but there is risk. Yep. I mean that's yep. volatility. So I mean it's it's more volatile than a savings g- savings account, which is what you need to know going in.
1: Good to know. Good to know. Well, Matt, before we take off, let's give our listeners a couple of stocks to watch. What is one stock you've got your eye on this week?
0: Oh, one that I talk about somewhat often on this show. We've had the CEO on on before. It is Latch LTCH, recently went public through a SPAC. They report their earnings on the first earnings of theirs as a public company on Thursday. Um, Now that they have all this SPAC money burning a hole in their pocket, I'm curious to see what they're doing with it and how it's (laughs) translating into earnings. And remember, with Latch, it's not revenue to pay attention to; it's bookings. Remember, Latch books their revenue a few years before they actually receive it, because they're putting their product on newly built apartment buildings, which yeah. can take years to plan and build. So, pay attention to bookings and growth in bookings, not just revenue, uh, when when Latch reports on Thursday. And if the numbers look good, I think it's a big positive for the stock.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, I'm keeping an eye on Unity software. Um, Earnings for Unity come out on Tuesday after the market closes. And so, this is one that I've been following for a while now. And uh, to me, it was really interesting watching this business come public because it was known as a gaming engine their their goal really one of their main goals has been to make that leap from being just a gaming engine uh, to to becoming what ultimately is seen as a creation engine where it's customers in a household appliances and automotive and healthcare and aerospace I mean this is they, they want to be seen as a creation engine for all sorts of different markets and I think they're pulling it off pretty nicely. Um, I had initially projected that they should cross $1 billion in revenue no later than 2022. Sounds like they are going to cross that $1 billion revenue mark this year, 2021. So uh, that's nice to see. And a lot of that is because you see customers signing on, staying on, and then continuing to grow their relationships. Uh, Last quarter, I believe they reported uh, 837 customers uh, that generated more than $100,000 of revenue each uh, over the last year for the company. So, we'll pay attention to that big customer metric, we'll pay attention to that dollar-based net expansion rate. Um, that was 140% last quarter versus 133% from um, a year ago, and uh, yeah, it, it feels like to me it's still so new to the public markets. We're we're still kind of letting all of that financial shake out from the IPO, but the metrics, the key performance indicators, really, really are telling the story here of, of a company whose uh, services are in high demand. So be looking for that to continue. Uh, but Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. I Hey, listen, man, I appreciate you taking the time down there from sunny Florida. I'm sure, I'm sure you're looking to get out there to Disney World or one of the parks right now. I appreciate you taking some of the time out of your day to uh, to join us here and uh, share with our listeners.
0: I'm, I'm going to the pool. Who wants to walk around <laughs> Disney in August?
1: <laughs> That's a good point. Good point. I'll, I'll take that one. I I'd appreciate that. <laughs> well, enjoy then, and uh, we'll look forward to connecting again next Monday. Remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus, or you can drop us an email at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.